Streams of Silver, Chapter 20, End of a Dream When the last tremors of the cave-in had finally died away, the four remaining friends picked their way through the rubble and the veil of dust back to the oval chamber. Heedless of the piles of broken stone and the great cracks in the floor that threatened to swallow them up, Brunner scrambled into the alcove, and the others close on his heels. No blood or any other signs of the two master swordsmen was anywhere to be found, just the mound of rubble covering the whole of the stonework trap. Brunner could see the edges of darkness beneath the pile, and he called out to Drizzt. His reason told him against his heart and hopes that the drow could not hear that the trap had taken Drizzt from him. The tear that rimmed his eye dropped to his cheek when he spotted the lone scimitar, the magical blade that Drizzt had plundered from a dragon's lair, resting against the ruins of the alcove. Solemnly, he picked it up and slid it into his belt. Alas for ye elf, he cried into the destruction. You deserved a better end. If the others had not been so caught up in their own reflections at that moment, they would have noticed the angry undertone to Brunner's mourning. In the face of the loss of his dearest and most trusted friend, and already questioning the wisdom of continuing through the halls before the tragedy, Brunner found his grief muddled with even stronger feelings of guilt. He could not escape the part he had played in bringing about the Dark Elf's fall. He remembered bitterly how he had tricked Drizzt into joining the quest, feigning his own death and promising an adventure the likes of which none of them had ever seen. He stood now, quietly, and accepted his inner torment. Wolfgar's grief was equally deep and uncomplicated by other feelings. The barbarian had lost one of his mentors, the warrior who had transformed him from a savage, brutish warrior to a calculating and cunning fighter. He had lost one of his truest friends. He would have followed Driz to the bowels of the abyss in search of adventure. He firmly believed that the drow would one day get them into a predicament from which they could not escape. But when he was fighting beside Drizzt, or competing against his teacher, the master, he felt alive, existing on the very dangerous edge of his limits. Often, Wolfgar had envisioned his own death beside the drow, a glorious finish that the bards would write and sing about long after the enemies who had slain the two friends had turned to dust in unmarked graves. That was an end the young barbarian did not fear. "'You've found your peace now, me friend.' Catterby said softly, understanding the drow's tormented existence better than anyone. Catterby's perceptions of the world were more attuned to Drizzt's sensitive side, the private aspect of his character that his other friends could not see beneath his stoic features. It was the part of Drizzt that had demanded he leave Menza Baranzen and his evil race, and had forced him into a role as an outcast. Catterby knew the joy of the drow's spirit, and the unavoidable pain he had suffered at the snubbings of those who could not see that spirit for the color of his skin. She realized, too, that both the causes of good and evil had lost a champion this day, for in Entreri, Caterbury saw the mirror image of Drizzt. The world would be better for the loss of the assassin, but the price was too high. Any relief that Regis may have felt at the demise of Entreri was lost in the swirling mire of his anger and sorrow, a part of the halfling had died in that alcove. No longer would he have to run. Pasha Pook would pursue him no more. But for the first time in his entire life, Regis had to accept some consequences for his actions, 
He joined up with Bruner's party knowing that Ancheri would be close behind and understanding the potential danger to his friends. Ever the confident gambler, the thought of losing this challenge had never entered his head. Life was a game that he played hard and to the edge, and never before had he expected to pay for his own risks. If anything in the world could temper the halfling's obsession with chance, it was this, the loss of one of his few true friends because of a risk that he had chosen to take. Farewell, my friend, he whispered into the rubble. Turning to Brunner, he then said, Where do we go? How do we get out of this terrible place? Regis hadn't meant the remark as an accusation, but forced into a defensive posture by the mire of his own guilt, Brunner took it as such and struck back. You did it yourself, he snarled at Regis. You bring the killer after us. Brunner took a threatening step forward, his face contorted by melting rage and his hands whitened by the intensity of their clench. Wolfgar, confused by this sudden pulse of anger, moved a step closer to Regis. The halfling did not back away, but made no move to defend himself, still not believing that Brunner's anger could be so consuming. "'You thief!' Brunner roared. "'You go along picking your way with no concern for what you're leaving behind.' And your friends pay for it. His anger swelled with each word, again almost a separate entity from the dwarf, gaining its own momentum and strength. His next step would have brought him right up to Regis, and his motion showed them all clearly that he meant to strike. But Wolfgar stepped between the two and halted Brunner with an unmistakable glare. Broken from his angry trance by the barbarian's stern posture, Brunner realized then what he was about to do. More than a little embarrassed, he covered his anger beneath his concern for their immediate survival and turned away to survey the remains of the room. Few, if any, of their supplies had survived the destruction. Leave the stuff, no time for wasting, Brunner told the others, clearing the choked growls from his throat. We're to be putting this foul place far behind us. Wolfgar and Catterby scanned the rubble, searching for something that could be salvaged and not so ready to agree with Brunner's demands that they press on without any supplies. They quickly came to the same conclusion as the dwarf, though, and with a final salute to the ruins of the alcove, they followed Brunner back into the corridor. "'I'm meaning to make Garum's gorge after the next rest,' Brunner exclaimed. "'So ready yourselves for a long walk.' "'And then where?' Wolfgar asked, guessing but not liking the answer. Out! Brunner roared. Quick as we can! He glared at the barbarian, daring not to argue. To return with the rest of your kin beside us? Wolfgar pressed. Not to return, said Brunner. Never to return. Then Drizzt has died in vain, Wolfgar stated bluntly. He sacrificed his life for a vision that will never be fulfilled. Brunner paused to steady himself in the face of Wolfgar's sharp perception. He hadn't looked at the tragedy in that cynical light, and he didn't like the implications. Not for nothing, he growled at the barbarian. A warning it is to all of us to be gone from this place. Evil's here, thick as orcs on mutton. Don't you smell it, boy? Don't your eyes and nose tell you to be gone from here? My eyes tell me of the danger, Wolfgar replied evenly, 
as often they have before. But I am a warrior and pay little heed to such warnings. Then you're sure to be a dead warrior, Catterbury put in. Wolfgar glared at her. Drizzt came to help take back Mithra Hall, and I shall see the deed done. You'll die trying, boy, muttered Brunner, the anger off his voice now. We came to find me home, boy, but this is not the place. Me people once lived here, tis true, but the darkness that creeped into Mithril Hall has put an end to me claim on it. I've no wish to return once I'm clear of the stench of the place. Know that in your stubborn head. It's for the shadows now, and the grey ones, and may the whole stinking place fall in on their stinking heads. Brunner had said enough. He turned abruptly on his heel and stamped off down the corridor, his heavy boots pounding into the stone with an uncompromising determination. Regis and Caterbury followed closely, and Wolfgar, after a moment to consider the dwarf's resolve, trotted to catch up with him. Sidney and Bach returned to the oval chamber as soon as the mage was certain the companions had left. Like the friends before her, she made her way to the ruined alcove and stood for a moment reflecting on the effect this sudden turn of events would now have on her mission. She was amazed at the depth of her sorrow for the loss of Entreri, for though she didn't fully trust the assassin and suspected that he might actually be searching for some powerful artifact she and Dendibar sought, she'd come to respect him. Could there have been a better ally when the fighting started? Sidney didn't have a lot of time to mourn for Entreri, for the loss of Driz to Arden conjured more immediate concerns for her own safety. Dendibar wasn't likely to take the news lightly, and the model wizard's talent at punishment was widely acknowledged in the host tower of the Arcane. Bach waited for a moment, expecting some command from the mage, but when none came forthcoming, the golem stepped into the alcove and began removing the mound of rubble. "'Stop,' Sidney ordered. Bach kept in on its chore, driven by its directive to continue its pursuit of the drow. "'Stop!' Sidney said again, this time with more conviction. "'The drow is dead, you stupid thing!' The blunt statement forced her own acceptance of the fact and set her thoughts into motion. Bach did not stop and turned to her, and she waited a moment to sort out the best course of action. "'We will go after the others,' she said offhandedly, as much to try and enlighten her own thoughts with the statement as to redirect the golem. Yes, perhaps if we deliver the dwarf and the other companions to Dendibar, he will forgive our stupidity in allowing the drow to die. She looked to the golem, but, of course, its expression was not changed to offer any encouragement. It should have been you in the alcove, Sidney muttered, her sarcasm wasted on the thing. And Trevi could at least offer some suggestions— but no matter. I have decided. We shall follow the others and find the time when we might take them. They will tell us what we need to know about the crystal shard. Bach remained motionless, awaiting her signal. Even with its most basic of thought patterns, the golem understood that Sidney best knew how they would complete their mission. The companions moved through huge caverns, more natural formations than dwarf-carved stone. High ceilings and walls stretched out into the blackness, beyond the glow of the torches, leaving the friends dreadfully aware of their vulnerability. 
They kept close together as they marched, imagining a host of grey dwarves watching them from the unlit reaches of the caverns, or expecting some horrid creature to swoop down at them from the darkness above. The ever-present sounds of dripping water paced them with its rhythm, its plip, plop, echoing through every hall, accentuating the emptiness of the place. Bruner remembered this section of the complex well, and found himself once again deluged by long-forgotten images of his past. These were the halls of the gathering, where all of Clan Battlehammer would come together to hear the words of King Garum, or to meet with important visitors. Battle plans were laid here, and strategies set for commerce with the outside world. Even the youngest dwarves were present at these meetings, and Bruner recalled fondly the many times he'd sat beside his father, Banger, beside his grandfather, King Garum, with Banger pointing out the king's techniques for capturing the audience and instructing the young Bruner in the arts of leadership that he would one day need, the day he became king of Mithril Hall. The solitude of the caverns weighed heavily on the dwarf, who had heard them ring out in the common cheering and chanting of ten thousand dwarves. Even if he were to return with all the remaining members of the clan, they would fill only a tiny corner of one chamber. Too many gone, Bruner said into the emptiness, his soft whisper louder than he had intended in the echoing stillness. Caterbury and Wolfgar, concerned for the dwarf and scrutinizing his every action, noted the remark and could easily enough guess the memories and emotions that had prompted it. They looked to each other, and Caterbury could see that the edge of Wolfgar's anger at the dwarf had dissipated in a rush of sympathy. Hall after great hall loomed up with only short corridors connecting them. Turns and side exits broke off every few feet. But Bruner felt confident that he knew the way to the gorge. He knew, too, that anyone below would have heard the crashing of the stonework trap and would be coming to investigate. This section of the upper level, unlike the areas they'd left behind, had many connecting passages to the lower levels. Wolfgard doused the torch, and Bruner led them on under the protective dimness of the gloom. Their caution soon proved prudent, for as they entered yet another immense cavern, Regis grabbed Bruner by the shoulder, stopping him, and motioned for all of them to be silent. Bruner almost burst out in rage, but saw at once the sincere look of dread on Regis's face. His hearing sharpened by years of listening for the click of a lock's tumblers, the halfling had picked out a sound in the distance other than the dripping of water. A moment later, the others caught it too, and soon they identified it as marching steps of many booted feet. Bruner took them into dark recesses where they watched and waited. They never saw the passing host clearly enough to count its numbers or identity, its members but they could tell by the number of torches crossing the far end of the cavern that they were outnumbered by at least ten to one, and they could guess the nature of the marchers. Grey ones, or me mother's a friend of orcs, Bruner grumbled. He looked at Wolfgar to see if the barbarian had any further complaints about the decision to leave Mithril Hall. Wolfgar accepted the stare with a conceding nod. How far to Garum's gorge? he asked fast becoming as resigned to leaving as the others. He felt as though he was deserting Drizzt, but he understood the wisdom of Bruner's choice. It grew obvious now that if they remained, Drizzt Duarden would not be the only one of them to die in Mithril Hall. "'An hour to the last passage,' Bruner answered. "'Another hour, no more, from there.' 
the host of the Grey Dwarves soon cleared the cavern, and the companions started off again, using even more caution and dreading each shuffling footfall that thumped the floor harder than intended. His memories coming clearer with each passing step, Brunner knew exactly where they were and made for the most direct path to the gorge, meaning to be out of the halls as quickly as possible. After many minutes of walking, though, he came across a side passage that he simply could not pass by. Every delay was a risk, he knew, but the temptation emanating from the room at the end of this short corridor was too great for him to ignore. He had to discover how far the despoilment of Mithril Hall had gone. He had to learn if the most treasured room in the upper level had survived. The friends followed him without question and soon found themselves standing for a tall, ornate metal door inscribed with the hammer of Moradin, the greatest of the dwarven gods, and a series of runes beneath it. Brunner's heavy breathing belied his calmness. Herein lie the gifts of our friends, Brunner read solemnly, and the craftings of our kin. Know ye, as ye enter this hallowed hall, that ye look upon the heritage of Clan Battlehammer. Friends be welcome. Thieves beware. Brunner turned to his companions, beads of nervous sweat on his brow. The Hall of Dumathoin, he explained. Two hundred years of your enemies in the halls, Wolfgar reasoned. Surely it has been pillaged. Not so, said Brunner. The door is magic and would not open for enemies of the clan. A hundred traps are inside to take the skin from a grey one who was to get through. He glared at Regis, his grey eyes narrowed in a stern warning. Watch to your own hands, Rumblebelly. Mightn't be that a trap won't know you to be a friendly thief. The advice seemed sound enough for Regis to ignore the dwarf's biting sarcasm. Unconsciously, Admitting the truth of Brunner's words, the halfling slipped his hands into his pockets. "'Fetch a torch from the wall,' Brunner told Wolfgar. "'Me thoughts tell me that no lights burn within.' Before Wolfgar even returned to them, Brunner began opening the huge door. It swung easily under the press of the hands of a friend, swinging wide into a short corridor that ended in a heavy black curtain. A pendulum blade hung ominously in the center of the passage, a pile of bones beneath it. Thieving dog! Brunner chuckled with grim satisfaction. He stepped by the blade and moved to the curtain, waiting for all the friends to join him before he entered the chamber. Brunner paused, mustering the courage to open the last barrier to the hall, sweat glistening on all the friends' faces now as the dwarf's anxiety swept through them. With a determined grunt, Brunner pulled the curtain aside. Behold! The Hall of Duma, he began, but the words stuck in his throat as soon as he looked beyond the opening. Of all the destruction they'd witnessed in the halls, none was more complete than this. Mounds of stone littered the floor. Pedestals that had once held the finest works of the clan lay broken apart, and others had been trampled into dust. Brunner stumbled in blindly, his hands shaking and a great scream of outrage lumped in his throat. He knew before he even looked upon the entirety of the chamber that the destruction was complete. How? Brunner gasped. Even as he asked, though, he saw the huge hole in the wall, not a tunnel carved around the blocking door, but a gash in the stone, as though some incredible ram had blasted through. What power could have done such a thing? Wolfgar asked, 
following the line of the dwarf's stare to the hole. Bruner moved over, searching for some clue. Caterbury and Wolfgar with him. Regis headed the other way, just to see if anything of value did remain. Caterbury caught a rainbow-like glitter on the floor and moved what she thought was a puddle of some dark fluid. Bending close, though, she realized that it wasn't liquid at all, but a scale, blacker than the blackest night and nearly the size of a man. Wolfgar and Bruner rushed to her side at the sound of her gasp. "'Dragon!' Wolfgar blurted, recognizing the distinctive shape. He grasped the thing by its edge and hoisted it upright to better inspect it. Then he and Caterbury turned to Bruner to see if he had any knowledge of such a monster. The dwarves' wide-eyed, terror-stricken stare answered their question before it was asked. "'Blocker than the block!' Bruner whispered, speaking again the most common words of that fateful day of those two hundred years ago. "'Me father told me of the thing.' he explained to Wolfgar and Caterbury. A demon spawned dragon, he called it. A darkness blacker than the black. T'was not the grey ones that routed us. We would have fought them head on at the last. The dragon of darkness took our numbers and drove us from the halls. Not one in ten remained to stand against its foul hordes in the smaller halls at the other end. A hot draft of air from the hole reminded them that it probably connected to the lower halls, and the dragon's lair. Let's be leaving, Caterbury suggested. Afore the beast gets a notion that we're here. Regis then cried out from the other side of the chamber. The friends rushed to him, not knowing if he had stumbled upon treasure or danger. They found him crouched beside a pile of stone, peering into a gap in the blocks. He held up a silver-shafted arrow. I found it in there, he explained. And there's something more. A bow, I think. Wolfgar moved the torch closer to the gap, and they all saw clearly the curving arc that could only be the wood of a longbow, and the silvery shine of a bowstring. Wolfgar grasped the wood and tugged lightly, expecting it to break apart in his hands, under the enormous weight of the stone. But it held firmly, even against the pull of all his strength. He looked around at the stones, seeking the best course to free the weapon. Regis, meanwhile, had found something more. A golden plaque wedged in another crack in the pile. He managed to slip it free and brought it into the torchlight to read its carved runes. Talmaril, the heart-seeker, he read. Gift of Anariel, sister of Faerun, Bruner finished without even looking at the plaque. He nodded in recognition to Canterbury's questioning glance. Free the bow, boy, he told Wolfgar. Sure it might be put to a better use than this. Wolfgar had already discerned the structure of the pile and started lifting away specific blocks at once. Soon, Caterbury was able to wiggle the bow free, and she saw something else beyond its nook in the pile and asked Wolfgar to keep digging. While the muscled barbarian pushed aside the stones, the others marveled at the beauty of the bow. Its wood hadn't even been scratched by the stones, and the deep finish of its polish returned with a single brush of the hand. Caterbury strung it easily and held it up, feeling its solid and even draw. Test it, Regis offered, handing her the silver arrow. Caterbury couldn't resist. She fitted the arrow to the silvery string and drew it back, meaning only to try its fit and not intending it to fire. A quiver, Wolfgar called, lifting the last of the stones. And more of the silver arrows. Bruner pointed into the blackness and nodded. Caterbury didn't hesitate. 
A streaking tail of silver followed the whistling missile as it soared into the darkness, ending its flight abruptly with a crack. They all rushed after it, sensing something beyond the ordinary. They found the arrow easily, for it was buried halfway into the fletches of the wall. All about its point of entry, the stone had been scorched, and even tugging with all its might, Wolfgar couldn't budge the arrow an inch. Not to fret, said Regis, counting the arrows in the quiver that Wolfgar held. There are nineteen, oh, twenty more. He backed away, stunned. The others looked at him in confusion. Nineteen there were, Regis explained. My count was true. Wolfgar, not understanding, quickly counted the arrows. Twenty, he said. Twenty now, Regis answered, but nineteen when I first counted. So the quiver holds some magic too, Caterbury surmised. A mighty gift indeed the Lady Anariel gave to the clan. What more might we find in the ruins of this place? Regis asked, rubbing his hands together. No more, Brunner answered gruffly. We're for leaving and not a word of arguing from you. Regis knew with a look at the other two that he had no support against the dwarf, so he shrugged helplessly and followed them back through the curtain and into the corridor. The gorge, Brunner declared starting them off again. Hold, Bach, Sidney whispered when the companion's torchlight re-entered the corridor a short distance ahead of them. Not yet, she said, an anticipating smile widening across her dust-streaked face. We shall find a better time.